Well, good morning. Uh, as John mentioned, my name's Tim, and uh, I've been part of EBF now since August. Uh, my family and I have been so blessed to be part of this community. It has just been good for our soul. And so I want to thank you. Uh, just so many of you have been so welcoming. It, it has been just a joy to be part of EBF. Um, and I can't wait for you to come with us when we plant a church. So, uh, but before we start this morning, I want to I pray. So let's pray. God, uh, we thank you so much for gathering us this morning. Uh, who knows where we'd be this Sunday morning if you hadn't intervened in our lives. Uh, we thank you so much for, for that, God. And uh, Lord, we just invite you to uh, convict us, challenge us, encourage us through your word. We want to hear from you this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd be working in me as I speak and that you would be working uh, in each of us as we listen to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. America loves a good controversy. Uh, as many of you know, if you're on Facebook, there are a million controversies that you could get engaged in. Um, they range from important ones, ones that get real heated, you know, gun control and, and things like that. Uh, but then there are some that I, I, I prefer the ones like, what color is the dress? Are you familiar with this controversy? Um, if, you, if you're not, you can Google it. Um, don't Google it now. Uh, don't pretend like you're using version, but you're actually looking this up. Um, basically, people get real heated about what color is this dress or things, things like that. We like a good controversy. Um, I'll say, though, that I don't really like a good controversy. I wish that we could just hug. Um, I don't really get in the mix when that's happening. Um, uh, but, you know, so when I came to this passage, I was told I'm going to be preaching thou shalt not murder. And I was kind of happy about that because uh, it is not a particularly controversial commandment. Um, <laughs> Just about every culture in, in all of cultures have had some sort of prohibition against murder. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was kind of thinking, all right, I'm, I'm golden. This is going to be easy. Uh, and, and I felt like I'm good here. I, I can, I, I'm, not, I'm not too worried about this. And maybe you're thinking the same thing right now. I can kind of sit back, relax. This is the commandment I know I'm good in. Um, but as we're soon going to see, it is not that simple. Um, I hope that you'll be convicted as I was as we uh, take a look into this, this commandment. Today, my main goal is I want to answer two questions. First, what did this commandment originally mean? And second, how did this commandment come to us in the new covenant? So what did this commandment mean originally, and how does this commandment come to us in the new covenant? Let's start with that first question. Uh, what did this commandment originally mean? And I want to take you through kind of my own journey for how I, I came to grips uh, to understanding what this commandment was really about. Um, it's actually rooted in a controversy that I was in uh, with a friend of mine. We were debating um, whether or not Christians should practice nonviolence or, or what is the appropriate use of force in different situations like that. And uh, he, he was a real intense dude. He was way smarter than me, the kind of friend you want to have. Uh, who really challenged me, and uh, I, I kind of leaned towards pacifism, and he was a hawk. Uh, and so he was challenging me because I was telling him, you know, look at Jesus, turn the other cheek, he's graceful, merciful. I, I was so compelled by Jesus in the New Testament, and he said he was challenging me to look at God in all of Scripture as I came to my conclusion about him. So I, I thought, you know, okay, I've got the ace of spades here, and I brought him to this commandment. He said, God commanded the Israelites, thou shalt not kill. In, in the Old Testament. And he said, no, he didn't. And I was like, what? No, yeah, he did. And he said, no, no, he didn't. It doesn't say thou shalt not 
kill. And if you look at your translation today, it said, thou shalt not murder. And so he kind of pressed me on that. Uh, and so at this point, the wind was kind of out of my sails. I, I didn't really want to talk about it. I wanted to be like, so what color is the dress, right? Um, <laughs> but he pressed me further. He said, all right, let's, let's read Deuteronomy 20. Here's a few verses from Deuteronomy 20, uh, verses 16 and 17, regarding war. In the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. God clearly here is commanding the Israelites to kill. Not just the men, but everyone in these different people groups in the land that God was uh, giving to them. And as I kept reading in the Old Testament, this started to mess with me. This became maybe the the main rub in me really wanting to follow Jesus. Um, Why would God give a commandment like, thou shalt not murder, and then seem to me uh, to uh, to allow uh, murderous behavior by his people? That's how I, I was perceiving it. It felt inconsistent. It seemed wrong to me. Uh, it just, it confused me. And uh, I want to take you through my own unpacking of this as I work through it. So first, let's try and understand what this sixth commandment is saying by looking at some, some technical details. Uh, there's several words for killing in Hebrew. And the one that's used here is never used in the legal system. It's never used in the military, and it's not used for hunting or killing animals. So that already kind of uh, focuses us a little bit. This commandment is forbidding the unlawful killing of a human being. Um, And that's why it said not, uh, thou shalt not kill, but thou shalt not murder. But even murder, as we think of it, doesn't cover the full scope of this word because uh, it also covered wrongful death that was caused by negligence or carelessness. So what we call involuntary manslaughter, that that would have been considered uh, forbidden under this commandment as well. Um, Genesis 1.26 tells us that God has made humans in his image. We bear the image of God. As people, And so the taking of the life of one of these image bearers is no small matter to him. Still, though, this was pretty unsatisfying to me uh, as I was wrestling through it. So God forbids killing that is unlawful. When and why would killing ever be lawful? That's kind of where I was coming from. Why on earth would killing be, be lawful? Um, so let's try and answer that question. I'm, I'm going to first start with a conclusion I'd like to draw, and then we'll work backward. I believe killing is lawful in the Old Testament when it's God's chosen means for enacting his judgment on people. So I believe killing is lawful in the Old Testament when it is God's chosen means for enacting his judgment on people. Let's look again at that passage in Deuteronomy. God says, In the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. And then he lists these different peoples So why does God say this about these people? Um, We get a hint when we look back at Genesis chapter 15. In that, God says to Abraham, your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You'll recognize that name from that list that we read in Deuteronomy 20, the Amorites. So these people, their sin was not yet ready to be judged. And so God was going to make Israel wait 400 years 
until it would be just for him to judge them. God knew already that they were going to need to be judged, but he was not going to do it ahead of time until it was truly just for him to judge these peoples. Um, And Israel was going to have to go through a lot as they waited, uh, being enslaved and oppressed, uh, but God was not willing to to rush that. Um, he, He was going to judge in the right time. And the instrument that God used in this work was Israel. So even though God sees himself as the one who is judging, he's decided to use the tool of Israel in this. He says to Joshua, I brought you into the land of the Amorites, and they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. It was God who did the destroying. It was God who did the work. It was by the hand of Israel, but it was the judgment of God. And in case there's any doubt that this is really uh, about God's judgment and not about Israel's greatness or something like that, uh, God says in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, Do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So uh, this, this killing of, of the Amorites and these people was not on a whim by Israel. Had it been, that would have been breaking this commandment. But God said, I am choosing to judge these people in this time, and he is going to use Israel to do that. And uh, the same is true for other places that killing is warranted in the Old Testament. It, trace backs, it traces back ultimately to God's judgment as well. So God forbids unlawful killing, um, which is uh, killing that uh, takes uh, God's judgment into our own hands when we want to, to become the judge instead of God. So there are two really important implications of this before we go on. Um, and those are God is the judge and we are not. Pretty simple. God is the judge and we are not. And I had to come to grips with this reality that God judges sinful people. Uh, I, that, that truly did not sit well with me. I didn't like it. Um, I, I'm a sinful person. I, I struggled with this. Um, but the actions prescribed in Deuteronomy 20 are not wrong if a perfect judge has deemed this right and necessary. Again, still I was frustrated even as I, I heard this. I did not like the idea of God as a judge, period. And many of, of you may be in the same boat. I just, it just doesn't feel right. Um, in the West, God's grace, his mercy, that comes more naturally to us. But interestingly, in other parts of the world, it's God's grace and his mercy that's offensive to people. Um, the, the judgment of God is, is a comfort, and it's good news, and it's his mercy and grace that is offensive. Um, I want to read a quote from Miroslav Volf. I, I first heard this from Tim Keller, so I'm quoting from a quote. Um, it's kind of like citing Wikipedia, but um, he... He helpful illustrates how, helpfully illustrates how people in other parts of the world see God as a judge as good news. Um, and this is kind of where I began to turn in my, my own thinking about this. So this quote is part of his argument that nonviolence requires a belief in a God who judges, a belief in divine vengeance. And whether or not you ultimately land on, on okay, nonviolence or, or the appropriate use of force, that's not the point here. That's not why I bring this point up. Uh, the point is to illustrate why we need a God who is a judge. So uh, he says this, Imagine speaking to people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, 
whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit, and you tell them not to retaliate? The only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. For people who have experienced this kind of suffering, this kind of evil, um, we cling to the hope that there is a God who will make this right. Um, that there is a God who cares enough to, to right those wrongs and then frees us up for those uh, who, who uh, practice nonviolence to, to not have to take judgment into their own hands. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says God. So Israel uh, was used as this uh, instrument of God's justice. Um, and we know that we, we need a God who will take Vengeance. So we've seen this first implication that God is judge. And now the second, we are not. We are not the judge. We, God's people today, the church, are not God's instrument for judgment. John Piper has a quote, and he says this, The church of Jesus Christ is God's instrument of evangelization and reformation. We have no ethnic or geographic or political identity. We are aliens and exiles. We're Sojourners, as we uh, say here at EBF. To the church, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. So God has chosen not to use us as an instrument of judgment. Um, We are going to be an instrument of evangelization to, to bring the good news, not an instrument of judgment. And that is why we see uh, killing in the Old Testament. Uh, this, that's why there's this category. Uh, Israel was God's instrument of judgment in the Old Testament. Um, so because it wasn't Israel, ultimately, but God who was judging sinful people, uh, that's, that's why we've got this kind of caveat of lawful killing. So we'll put a cap on this first question. What did this commandment originally mean? It meant thou shalt not unlawfully kill a human being. Let's move on to the second question. How does this commandment come to us in the New Covenant? How does this commandment come to us as New Covenant believers? Ben Wilson's opening sermon in the series talked about uh, how the Ten Commandments come to us in different ways. Um, some of them are, are fulfilled fully in Jesus. Um, others are expanded. There's this idea of greater grace and a deeper demand. And, and that's what's happening in the case of this commandment. Uh, Jesus speaks directly about this issue in Matthew chapter 5. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read verses 21 to 26. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So 
If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So we're going to break this section down uh, into two subsections. Uh, first, we're going to kind of look at the, the problem that Jesus explaining, is, is explaining what, what makes us liable to judgment. And then we're going to look at the solution. So first, let's look at this, this problem. Um, now, if you would have asked me to kind of anticipate, what is Jesus going to say? He says, you have heard it said that thou shalt not murder, but... How's Jesus going to amplify this? I, my, my thought would have been, he'd say something like, you've got to promote life, not just um, don't kill, but you've got you've to promote life and, and defend life. And while I think that is true, absolutely true and biblically warranted, it's interesting that that isn't specifically where Jesus takes it. He goes to anger. Um, that's, that's where he takes this. Uh, the problem that we're facing is anger. And we'll get more specific about that uh, as we go. Verse 21 He says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And then verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Imagine you're hearing Jesus talk about this for the the first time. And Jesus says um, that if you're angry with your brother or you insult your brother, you are liable to the council. So what he's saying is, if you call your brother stupid, you are liable to the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish court. That, that would have seemed kind of funny when you first heard it. Jesus is telling me that uh, if I call my brother stupid, litigation may follow. And we know that's, you know, that's not true. No, Jesus, that's not going to happen. And then he actually ups the ante. He says, if you insult your brother, you are, are liable to the hell of fire. So if you were chuckling when Jesus first said it, you're not chuckling anymore. Uh, He just got real serious, real fast. And it's shocking. It is shocking that that is what Jesus says. This kind of anger, the kinds of insults um, that he's talking about betray an attitude of contempt. And God takes that very, very seriously. Jesus takes this commandment, don't murder, well beyond homicide. So this piece that I have when I found out I was going to be preaching this this sermon on, on thou shalt not kill, that had to... That had to go real, away real quick as we got to this passage. Um, it's unreconciled anger, vilifying anger. That's the inner equivalency of murder. The intent of the law is to nurture relationships. And John talked about this uh, a lot last week. It's about right relatedness. And unreconciled anger destroys right relatedness. Unreconciled anger destroys right relatedness. Now, there's a conclusion that many of us have come to that's unhelpful here, and I am guilty of this. Uh, There's a belief that anger in and of itself is wrong. To be angry in and of itself is to murder. And let me plainly state it, that is not true. God is described as angry frequently in the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. Jesus himself calls the Pharisees fools, specifically blind fools. Um, There are things we can and should be angry about. Sex trafficking should make you angry. The, the slaughter of innocence should make you angry. A helpful verse 
to, to kind of balance this out is Psalm 4.4. It says, in your anger, do not sin. So it is possible to be angry and not to sin. And there's a couple of questions you can ask yourself here. What are you angry about when you're angry, and what should you do with that anger? That first question, what am I angry about? Often I'll admit what I'm most angry about is when my own kingdom is being attacked. Um, it's not really uh, when, when God's kingdom is being impeded, it's my own kingdom. That's when I get offended. Um, and if we're angry because God's kingdom is being impeded, that's a good thing. Sin and injustice are ruining this world. Sin and injustice are ruining the people that you love. It's right to be angry at that, and we should work toward justice. But if it's anger at your own kingdom uh, that's being impeded, don't let that lead to sin. You can follow that anger. It's going to reveal where you're maybe not trusting God, where you're not believing his gospel, and you can use that. But when we sin in our anger, we likely will be destroying relationships along with it, which is exactly what Jesus is highlighting here. So, to sum it up, verse 22 seems to be speaking of vilifying anger, unreconciled anger with another person, anger that breaks down relationships. And we have got to search our hearts for uh, signs of this. And this can be really difficult. I'll be honest, as I prepared this, I I, I literally thought, I'm I'm doing pretty good here. I think I'm like about a seven or an eight. I'm, I'm doing good here. Um, but I think I was deceiving myself. We've got to be careful. Deceiving yourself is, is an amazing tool that Satan uses um, because here's the thing about deception. If you are deceived, you believe a lie to be true. So it's different than being an outright liar. So imagine you're a dad and your kid comes up to you and she's got chocolate all over her face, clearly has eaten some cookies. And you say, did you eat those cookies? She says, no, no, I did not. She's lying. I mean, there's no getting around it. We all know what's going on here. You ate the cookies. Just fess up, all right? I can convict uh, a child of sin when that happens, right? But if a child can convince themselves that they have not eaten the cookies, you've got a new ball game because they are now impervious to guilt and impervious to conviction because they believe that they're right. They think that they're in the right. They, now you've got a new hurdle. You've got to show them that they're, they're wrong, that they're actually deceived and what they believe is, a, believe is a lie. And Satan uses this with us all of the time. I know he uses it with me. It bums me out that he uses it with me, but I definitely am guilty of this. So let's do a little quiz. This is not a formal quiz. Um, you don't have to write your answers down. You will not find this on BuzzFeed. But um, let's, let's take a quiz here. Let's, let's try and see, do you have unreconciled anger in your heart? Um, have you been deceiving yourself? The first question, do you usually think you're right? Maybe you're thinking, no, I, I know I'm right. Um, or, or put it another way, do you usually find yourself in the right in just about every argument that you've ever had? I'm, I'm the one who's in the right here. Um, that's dangerous. If you are thinking you're, you're in the right, most often, you know, you read the Bible and you most clearly identify with Jesus, you got to look in the mirror. Um, <laughs> we can fall into this, dra- this trap saying, okay, Jesus was justified when he called the Pharisees fools. I'm, I'm in that category. And if that's your default, be careful. The best way to get help with this and with any issue of deception um, is to pursue some help. Get another voice that you actually invite 
to speak into your life. And if you are the sort of person who is always right, that's going to be challenging. You're going to have to specifically ask for some pushback because I know my tendency with someone like that is I, I don't even want to deal with you. I don't want, I don't want to push back um, because you're, you're difficult to confront. So if, if you're very persuasive, um, please check yourself on this and, and get some good feedback in your life. Uh, we need to get feedback from others to see our blind spots because by definition, you can't see your own blind spots. By definition, you cannot see your own blind spots. You're going to need some help from someone else. Okay, second question. Are there people in your life that everything that they do, you see in a negative light? It doesn't matter if they were to hand you a plate of cookies, you would somehow find a way to think that they are, are secretly, like, against you. Um, this is revealing some unreconciled anger in your heart. Uh, we do this. We often create a monster. It's easier to hate a monster, right, than to hate someone who's a complex human being. And so we can kind of build a monster and try and nurture it, and then we feel justified in our anger. Uh, watch out if you're doing that. And then thirdly, this is the one where I fail uh, most clearly. Do you deny that you're angry altogether? Um, I, I'm not someone who gets explosively angry, but I think I get implosively angry. So I get frustrated and I just, I just bear it all. I don't lash out. I, I break down uh, as I just keep heaping on the weight of, of frustration that I'm dealing with other people. And then it seeps out in really unhealthy ways. Um, God was convicting me this week about this very thing. There was a guy that makes me angry, uh, and I don't really like to talk to him, and he called me several times. Um, he's, he's kind of uh, got a lot of needs in his life, and uh, I just straight ignored his phone calls. Um, this was several months ago that he called me, and I just did not respond. It was this passive-aggressive response um, and you know what? That is going to break relationships as much as explosive anger will. So we've got to look if, uh, you, you know, I use different words. I say, I'm upset. I'm frustrated. I'm not angry. But really, that's semantics. I'm, I'm angry. And I need to own it and then deal with it. So we're working to answer this question, how, this, uh, how does this commandment come to us today? And we're halfway, halfway there. We've, we've seen the problem. The problem is unreconciled, vilifying anger hurting one another in our anger. And now let's look at the solution. So you recognize this anger in your own heart. What should you do? Let's take a, another look at verses 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is an amazing statement in a couple of different ways. First, this is the opposite of how we usually do it. Usually, I wait for somebody who's been offended by me to come to me and tell me, hey, Tim, you've offended me, and then we deal with it. But Jesus is saying the opposite. He's putting it on the offender. He's saying, if you've wronged someone, you go to them and be reconciled. This is countercultural um, to take time to consider who you've wronged and then seek them out intentionally. Um, I struggled to find an example even of this in, in my own life as I thought about it. Um, the best one I could think of, uh, Abby's dad, I, I remember he, she was telling me a story of, she, he once came to her and said that he, he felt that he had, had hurt her um, with something that he said, and uh, she said, yeah, he had. But she told me she was almost uncomfortable by the fact that he approached her to apologize. It, it, it made her uncomfortable even. It, it's, it can be unnatural to us. Um, not only that, 
but the lengths that we are to go, uh, the lengths that we're to go to to do this are astounding. Listen to this quote. One commentator says, This was spoken in Galilee. And so Jesus is envisioning a worshiper who's traveled some 80 miles to Jerusalem with his offering, who then leaves the animal in the temple while he makes a journey of a week or more to Galilee and back again in order to, to effect a reconciliation with his offended brother or sister before he dares to present his offering. That is how important right relationships are. I, I hardly turn around for anything, much less a week's you know, travel. If I'm in the car and I realize I forgot my wallet or something, I'm like, oh, forget it. I'm just going to have to deal with it. Jesus is saying, if you're, if you're at the altar and you realize you've got an offended brother, you're turning around. You've got to go back and deal with this. We should have the same kind of commitment to resolving relational conflict. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, forget the worship service and be reconciled to your brother and only then worship God. We like to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love. But Jesus will have none of it. That's convicting. So why are we here this morning at Nichols Concert Hall, gathered together with the church? Presumably you're here because you want to offer something to God. You want to offer praises through song, through gathering together uh, with other believers, um, through giving. You want to please him with this offering. But hear this. The offering Jesus wants is that you reconcile that broken relationship first. The offering Jesus wants is that you reconcile that broken relationship first. Imagine you're a dad and it's, it's Father's Day um, and your kids are just fighting relentlessly. You're having the worst time. You're at a barbecue, but your kids are just, they can't stop fighting. So annoying. Um, and then one of them, you know, they, they find enough time to stop fighting and they, they give you a tie. And they're like, happy Father's Day, Dad, I got you this tie. The dad's probably thinking, all right, uh, I like the tie, it's nice, but what I would like is for you to stop fighting with your siblings. You know, I want peace. I want you to stop fighting with one another. And Jesus is saying something similar. I don't think he equates our worship to a tie, but um, he's saying something similar here. He's, he, he's told us what he wants. He wants us to reconcile uh, even before we offer him praises here at church. Maybe you're, you're asking this question. Okay, is this only about reconciling with my brother? Because the person who keeps coming to my mind isn't a believer. Do I still need to reach out to that person? I think there is a special emphasis on reconciling with our, our brother, with other believers, because it has such an important, uh, it, it's, it's so important to our witness as believers that we be reconciled with one another. However, remember that this commandment is expanding the commandment, do not murder. That commandment was not just don't murder your brother, but don't murder anyone. So I would argue that this too expands beyond just your brother. All right, let's take a look at the last two verses of this passage. Jesus says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus here is stressing how important and how urgent the need is to reconcile with your brother. Because if you're thrown in prison and you've got no means to pay, to get out, while you're in prison, you're never going to figure out a way to do that. You're not going to be able to earn any, any money. Jesus is saying you're never getting out. This is a divine judgment that is being pictured. 
Divine judgment is looming for those who, uh, whose earthly relationships don't conform to the values of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is laying out here. So we've got to get right with people now. If you've wronged someone, make it right. So we've seen the problem, anger, unreconciled anger. And now we've seen the, resu- uh, the solution, reconciliation. Uh, but I want to share a picture of what this can look like. Let, let's get a vision for what this can look like in our lives. It's really unsatisfying to me to hear a phony apology. You know, when somebody's been caught in something and they go uh, national television and they say this sort of like not real apology, like I'm sorry that uh, you don't like what I did or something like that. That's totally unsatisfying. But when somebody is real and they really seek forgiveness when they've wronged someone, it is powerful. It is beautiful. And I want to share a story from the Rwandan genocide just for a quick summary, if, uh, if you're not as familiar with it, the Rwandan genocide was a mass slaughter of a, a minority group called the Tutsi uh, at the hands of the majority group, the Hutu. During about 100 days in 1994, an estimated half a million to a million Rwandans were killed. Um, Tutsi people, uh, uh, people suspected of being Tutsi, were killed in their homes. And as they tried to flee... They were killed at roadblocks set up across the country during the genocide. Entire families were killed at a time. Women were systematically and brutally raped. And it's estimated that some 200,000 people participated in the perpetration of this genocide. Out of this tragedy, though, there has emerged some some truly powerful stories of forgiveness and reconciliation. And I want to share one of those stories Uh, We're going to put the quotes on the screen. First is a quote from the perpetrator, and second will be a quote from the victim. So this is what the perpetrator said. I burned her house. I attacked her in order to kill her and her children, but God protected them, and they escaped. When I was released from jail, if I saw her, I would run and hide. Then AMI, a religious group, started to provide us with trainings. I decided to ask her for forgiveness. To have good relationships with the person to whom you did evil deeds, we thank God. This is from the victim. I used to hate him. When he came to my house and knelt down before me and asked for forgiveness, I was moved by his sincerity. Now if I cry for help, he comes to rescue me. When I face any issue, I call him. When I hear a story like that, uh, there's a few thoughts that strike me. First, the degree of hurt that I've allowed to break relationships in my own life is embarrassing compared to this. We're guilty of letting smaller disputes erode our relationships. We're guilty of letting smaller disputes erode our relationships. This also, though, gives me hope that if someone can approach another person with that kind of of hurt, having wronged them to that kind of degree, and find reconciliation, I can be bold. I can take that step too um, and seek reconciliation. And and maybe some of you have have been pursuing reconciliation in a relationship for such a long time and you've not seen any fruit from it. There's hope. There is hope that there can be reconciliation in in that relationship. As we close, think also of the lengths that Jesus has gone to reconcile us to God. Jesus has taken all our sin. He's paid for it. Uh, he has left, he left everything, became a servant, servant. He suffered, 
He himself was murdered, ultimately defeats death and sin, bringing you back into a relationship with God. He stopped at nothing to bring peace to your relationship with God. And if, if you have not reconciled this relationship yet, your most important relationship, your relationship with God, do it today. If you've got any questions on how you do that, uh, in a little while the elders will be available for prayer. Um, and I encourage you, go to them and talk to them. Say, I need to get my most important relationship reconciled today. And if you are walking with Jesus, follow his example and go to great lengths to reconcile with your brother. I want to encourage you to take some time to start uh, this process of resolving your anger towards another person. Um, Jesus said, forget the worship service and be reconciled to your brother. If there's somebody, a name that's coming to your mind right now, and, and you feel like you could reach out to them, you can pull out your phone right now and you can text them. If you need to go out in the lobby and call someone, do it. Um, if you need to write someone a letter, jot some, some thoughts down right now, do it. Um, Jesus will be honored and pleased by that. The danger, of course, is that this will become a, a head knowledge. This is what I do. Uh, school, I think, trained me to learn the right lesson and then not really worry about applying it. <laughs> if I know it in my head, I'm good. Um, if you know this in your head to be true and you don't do it, you don't know it. Uh, Jesus, in, in, in James, we, we've just been uh, in the book of James, and James said, be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. So I would really encourage you, if there's a step you can take today, don't let it pass. Do it right now. Jesus has given us a high standard here, but he has given us the power to do this through his spirit. We have the spirit of Jesus, the actual spirit of Jesus living in us when we're a believer. He can really help you to walk in this. He can, he can do that. Um, and, and thank him. Thank God that at the same time, there is abundant grace when we fail at this, and we're going to fail at this. This same Jesus extends forgiveness to us when we wrong him by not walking in this way. Thank God for that. May we rely on this grace as we seek to live this word out in our lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Sometimes it is uncomfortable to be challenged by it, but we thank you for it. Um, we want to walk in your ways. Um, Lord, I pray for, for all of us that not only would you bring to mind people that we may have wronged, uh, even if it's in the distant past, Lord, would you bring those people to mind and then would you give us the courage to walk in your way, to pursue reconciliation, to pursue right relationships with the people that we have wronged. And Lord, for those in this room who have been wronged significantly, I pray that you would bring reconciliation in those relationships too, that maybe you would stir in someone, uh, the, the, the person who has wronged them, to go to them. Um, Lord, we want to see peace in our, our relationships with one another. So we invite you, God, to, to continue to work in us in this way. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.